This is part two of our uh, John chapter nine, Jesus makes the blind to see. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are in a courtroom and that you are standing before the judge and you are awaiting the verdict. All of a sudden coming forth from the judge, he says, you are guilty. And in that moment, there's a heaviness that hits you, a weight that drops you to your knees. The weight of guilt, sorrow, pain, a final sentence. You are guilty and you will spend the rest of your life behind bars. That is a guilt that you'll carry with you the rest of your life. Picture that, the weightiness of that sentence being handed down to you. Now, on the other side of it, you're standing there and you know that you're not guilty, but yet you have been accused. All of a sudden, you hear from the judge, you are not guilty. (laughs) In that moment, relief, excitement, you're light as a feather. And you say, finally, finally, everyone can understand that I am not guilty. There's the relief. When we look to this passage, we read through all of this, and at the end, Jesus says, your guilt remains. And for these men who did not believe that their guilt remained upon them, they haven't felt the weightiness yet, but they will when they stand before a holy God and they're condemned of their sins. And that weight upon them will crush their souls and condemn them in an eternity in the everlasting lake of fire. But for those who see and those who trust in Jesus like this man, no longer does their guilt remain. And when we're talking about guilt, we're talking about our sin, a sin remaining upon us meaning we must pay for it. But yet, this man sees Jesus and is recognizing him as the Christ who's going to the cross to pay for his sin, to take on the guilt for this man. And yet, we hope to see ourselves as this man when we look to Scripture. That is, if we trust in Jesus, we can be assured that we are just like this man and our guilt no longer remains. I want to ask you this question as we get started today. Does your guilt remain? Are you carrying guilt? Are you carrying a burden of your sin? It weighs you down. No matter what you do in life, the greatest joys in life are followed by great sorrow because there's something missing. Is that you today? Are you here today and your guilt remains? We're going to look at three people. We're going to look at those who refuse to believe, We're going to look at those who were afraid to believe. And then we're going to look at the one who was bold in his belief, who boldly believed. For Jesus is not only dealing with the eyes of this man in this passage, but he's healing the heart of this man. He's removing the guilt. But for those who refuse to believe and those who are afraid to believe, their guilt remains. Let's look at the first one. The Jews refused to believe. Verse 18 The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They were unwilling to believe in this miracle. Last time we finished in verse 17, and this is what it said. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. And remember we said that this was a good response because Jesus indeed is the the good prophet, the, the great prophet, meaning that he's the mouthpiece of God. 
He reveals truth and chases away the darkness. So he's saying, he's a prophet. See, in verse 11, the first time this man references Jesus, he says, the man called Jesus. Then in verse 17, he calls him a prophet. Finally, in verse 38, as we see today, he says, Lord, I believe. Recognizing him as the son of God. Today, do you recognize Jesus as just a man? Do you see him as a prophet? Do you see him as Lord? Who is Jesus? Do you believe what the word of God says about Christ? The Jews only believed that he was just a man called Jesus, refusing to believe that he was a prophet or that he could even be the son of God. And so verse 24, we know that this man is a sinner. Not only did they refuse to believe Jesus is the Christ, but they were confused about sin. Because if they were looking to Jesus and thinking that he was a sinner, then they didn't truly know what sin was because Jesus never sinned. They were the ones who sinned. But you see, they were interested in the how of the miracle, but they refused to believe in the whom of the miracle. They wanted to know how, but they didn't want to know whom. They, they, they didn't want to look at Jesus. They just want to know how it happened. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? That's all they're concerned about. How did he do this? Not who is he? They had already made up their minds. Their denial of the Messiah is not so much a blindness to the man's healing as it is a blindness to their own need for the spiritual healing of their guilt and sins. This is the power of sin upon us. It keeps us from seeing. Unbelief is preoccupied with the how rather than the whom. Maybe you're here today and you just want to know how. You, you could care less about Jesus. You just want to know how this works. Why are we gathered together as a people? Why do we preach? Why do we pray? Why do we read the scriptures? Why? How? How is this good for you? And yet you really could care less about Jesus. Maybe that's where you are today because that's where these men were. They looked down upon Jesus because he was beneath their expectations. Is Jesus beneath your expectations? Do you have more that you expect out of Jesus? Has he disappointed you? We know that Jesus could never disappoint us if we truly understand the word and the grace of God, but if you're not in that place, then maybe you see that Jesus has disappointed you and these men were disappointed by Jesus. But don't you just love the questions from the man? Did you pick up on this? Like He gives them questions to think about and they don't spend much time on it, but they're good questions. Verse 27, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I mean, why do I have to retell this to you if you've already made up your mind? Is there something actually going on in their hearts? For you see, we cannot become true disciples until we kneel and position ourselves at the feet of Christ Jesus, a position of humility. But instead, they reviled him, which means they slandered him. They insulted him strongly. For they profess what they do not know. Pick up on that. Verse 29. We do not know where he comes from. That's all they can say. We do not know where he comes from. They're not speaking what they know. They're speaking what they do not know. They do not know because they refuse to believe. They stubbornly deny that Jesus is the son of God come down from heaven to fulfill the father's will. They're bound by their sin. 
And they were determined to deny at all cost. Here's a question. Do you know someone who is determined to deny Christ at all cost? Is this someone in your home? Is this someone in your place of work? Is this someone in your neighborhood you've had conversations with and they're just going to deny Christ at all costs? There's no, quote unquote, winning an argument with them. They don't want to know. Do you know someone like this? Like these Jews, they are opposed to him and revile him through slander and mockery. Is this something you're going to have to face around Thanksgiving time when your family gathers together? Do you have someone in your midst? You see, this person can be intimidating, can't they? Maybe they scare you. Maybe you're afraid to even mention Jesus anymore because they're so witty and they're so quick to deny Christ and they make you feel foolish. But they're only clinging to what they do not know. Do not forget that. They're only clinging to what they do not know. They do not know Christ. You may be here today and say, I refuse to believe in this man, Jesus. Just know that there are many among you here today who believe the same at one time before the grace of God came upon them and allowed them to see. They're sitting right around you. Here today, those who have raised their voices in worship at one time, they would have never raised their voices to praise God. And yet they're sitting among you. If you're here today, and maybe this is something inwardly within you, like, I mean, yeah, that would be within you, uh, but secret, nobody else knows. You're struggling with this. You're just saying, I just can't believe. I, I want you to hear this. We're glad that you're here. If there's any place we want you to be, it's here. And we want you wrestling with that here. We don't want you going away from the church and trying to wrestle with that. Maybe you've been raised in the local church and you're just refusing to believe Christ. Wrestle with that here. Come, meet with me. Meet with the pastors here. Meet with a brother that's here, a sister in Christ that's among the church here. Go meet with them and say, I'm refusing to believe right now. I'm struggling. But do not walk away from here. We're glad that you're here, but I want you to hear this message. There are many who are determined and who refuse to believe, and their guilt remains upon them. This is the reality that we see within Scripture. But not only are, those, are there those who refuse to believe, there are also those who are afraid to believe. Number two, the parents were afraid to believe. The man's parents are brought in for questioning and, because this was no small matter. This is a big deal here. And they answered as if they had a lawyer sitting right next to them. Very wooden response. Don't say anything you don't have to. Don't say more than what they're asking of you. Keep it brief and a matter of fact. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know that this man is our son and that he was born blind. Matter of fact. But how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Matter of fact, they did not share more than they had to. And we're thinking, oh, well, they're, they're protecting their son. That's good. That's, that's kind of them, right? I mean, you mothers in the room would feel this tension, right? If my son's in danger, I'm not going to say more than I have to. I'm not going to put him in danger. But they keep going. Ask him. He is of age. 
He will speak for himself. He is of age. Ask him. Did they just throw their son to the wolves? Hey, don't, don't question me. No, 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 no. I'm just going to tell you, that's all him. Yeah, we saw his whole life he couldn't see. And now he sees. We don't know Jesus. We don't know how. Don't, don't ask us all these questions. Go ask him. On the one side of this, this is a positive response. It's a positive response. Each person must answer for themselves before God. Children in the room, understand this. You must answer for yourself. Sure, your dad can go with you into a fast food restaurant and order for you off the menu. Or mom, you can take your child to the doctor and answer all the hard questions. Your parents can iron your clothes for you for the next day. They can also help you fill out your college applications. They can do all those things as as good caring parents would do, but they cannot give your testimony for you. Can't do it. Parents, maybe you're the ones who need to hear this today. You cannot give your child's testimony for them. So if you ever bring your child and say they're ready to get baptized, it's your child who must speak and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not where mama sits down beside little Susie and we ask Susie, Susie, what's the gospel? What do you believe Jesus has done? Susie, remember what we talked about? Tell the pastor this. Let him know this. Come on, Susie. We talked about this at home. Hey, she talked about this at home. We know that she knows the answers. Listen, little Susie must answer for herself. You cannot answer for little Susie, mama. Daddy, you can't answer for them. Because what they're going to do is they're going to look back on that moment and go, well, I was young. I didn't really understand what I was doing, but my parents talked to me about this, and and then I got baptized. We struggle with that as pastors. How young should a child be before we baptize? I'm just going to be raw and honest with you. It's just something we're really praying through right now. Because more testimonies come through just like this. I was baptized at a young age, but I didn't have a clue what happened. I would ask for everyone to raise their hand if that's your testimony, but I know that half of the room would go up. I don't even have to ask the question. Most of us in the room have that testimony. You were baptized, didn't have a clue what was happening when you were nine years old, but later you understood. Does that mean that a child at a young age can't be saved? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that that child must answer for themselves if indeed the confession is true. Amen? Let us champion this. Let us champion this. This is the most important for your child's life. And so that's a positive here. Jesus changed this man. His parents said, go talk to him. Ask him. He is of age. What age? We're not sure how old he was, but they're confident that he could answer for himself. And look, we want to celebrate when a child's coming forward and saying, Jesus is Lord. He saved me in my sins. We want to celebrate that. Never do we want to discourage a child, but we want them to be sure so that as we walk alongside them as the church, they can be sure of their testimony. That's what we want for them. That's what you should want. Mom, dad, there's never a time when you say, oh, they need to be baptized by this age. There's not a set time as, as, as when they should be baptized. Oh, they're 12. They should have been baptized by now. Not necessarily. Be patient pray, keep ministering. 
Keep sharing the gospel, but they must speak for themselves. But there's a negative response to this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. You know why they answered this way? Because they were afraid. They were afraid. And when you get down to it, they were afraid. In verse 16, and there was a division among them. You see, Christ brings division for those who truly believe and those who do not. There will be division. Not all division is bad, as we said last time. Yeah, we want a unity. But there's going to be a division when it comes to Christ, those who truly believe and those who do not believe. And there was a division among them in verse 16. Division among the religious leaders. Nicodemus here? Is he here? Is he, is he getting it? Is he struggling with this? His name's not here, but I wonder if he's among this group. For the parents, they were clinging to their own reputation and livelihood. But before we look down on them, we too struggle with fear. We have great fear in our life. And there are many who are afraid to believe, for it may come at a great cost. Are you boldly following Christ right now, or are you living in fear? Are you afraid to mention the name of Jesus? Are you afraid to follow Jesus for what it may cost you? I believe that's where the parents were. They could be cast out of their social circle, the workplace, family. That's kind of hard for us to put ourselves in that context, right? Because here in the South, when you believe you're brought into a family and it's celebrated, but but there are Christians all around the world that it costs them greatly. And for many of them, it costs them their life. They were afraid. And you may be here today and say, I get it. I too am afraid of what it may cost to follow Jesus. But if we're talking about cost here, <laughs> Mark eight thirty six. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If every human being surrounded you and said, that's okay if you're afraid to follow Jesus, it's okay, don't worry about it, and the world were to comfort you, what benefit would that be if you lost your soul and were condemned to an eternal lake of fire? It would not be worth it. If you're in fear today of what the cost may be, I urge you, I implore you to look to Christ and know that you can trust him, that the work he did on the cross is good, and it's the only work that will satisfy the wrath of God, and that you'll believe in it, and you will not have to fear what others may do to you, but that you can fear God. For the only way to remain fearless before men is to truly fear God. I'm convinced of this. The only way to remain fearless of men is to truly Fear God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Matthew 10.28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear the one who has the power over your life eternally. Trust in him. For there are many who refuse to believe. There are plenty who are afraid to believe their guilt remains. Their guilt remains. But there are a precious few who boldly believe. 
I wonder today if you're part of the precious few who boldly believe. The man boldly believed, starting in verse 24 through 34, we see this. And he is beginning to live the Psalm 27, verse 1, life. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? I see. It is Christ. What else would you have me say? He's not afraid. He's bold in his belief in Christ Jesus. All he can say is, I was blind. I see. It was Jesus. And that's what all of us as Christians in this room, we share that testimony. I was blind in my sin. Christ made me to see. It is him. It is him and only him. Verse 24. The Jews called the man a second time for further questioning. They said, give glory to God. And we read this and say, um, <laughs> that's exactly what he's trying to do. But what they mean is come forth with the truth. Come forth with the truth, man. We know that this man is a sinner. This is the response of the man. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This response can be confusing. Shouldn't he know that Christ isn't a sinner? And, and the answer to that question is yes, he should know. But what he is saying here in this passage is, you want to call him a sinner. Here's what I know. I see. You call him a sinner all you want, but here's what I know. I see. Remember, those who refuse to believe are only clinging to what they do not know. But we as Christ's followers stand upon what we fully know to be the truth. I see. They responded with the how and the what of the miracle. And then they said this, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. As if that was going to keep him quiet. You see, when we boldly believe in Christ, others will recognize us as his disciples. They'll recognize you as his disciple. They may not like that we are disciples, but they certainly cannot deny that we are disciples. They'll recognize you as his disciples. They recognize this man as a disciple of Christ. That's what they're saying. You are now a disciple of Christ, and this man will take joy in that truth but yet they see it as an ultimate offense. Oh, but we're disciples of Moses. Beginning in verse 30, we observe the, the boldness of the new believer. And here's what he says, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. This word amazing means also astonishing. I love what D.A. Carson says at this point. He says, what he finds remarkable is not his own belief, but the unbelief of the officials. Here's, here's the cry of the Christian. How can you not believe? He's, he's made me to see. Man, I was a beggar. I could do nothing. I was on the side of the road. He comes and he makes me see. I'm astonished that you don't believe. That's what's happening here. Maybe we feel that tension when the world seems to have no care for Christ and we're astonished that they don't believe. But there are many who absolutely refuse at all costs to believe. You see, 
this man gladly associates himself as a disciple of Christ. Do you gladly associate yourself as a disciple of Christ? Or as soon as someone says, oh, you're a disciple of Christ, do you, do you step back? Do you cower down? Or do you step forward and say, to God be the glory, this is true. This is true. He opened my eyes, which means he, he caused me to see. And this, this is what he says. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. You see, the man, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I may have not had my sight for all of these years, but I've had my ears. We all know that God does not listen to sinners. For where the Jews were determined to refuse Christ, this man was determined to defend Christ. Are you determined to defend Christ at all costs? Whatever it may cost you, will you defend the name of Christ? This man was determined to defend Christ. Here's what he says. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Isn't it interesting that he says heard and not seen right here? Because he couldn't see, but he heard it. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It sounds so simple, but yet he's been awakened to see this truth. For Jesus has already debunked their belief in Moses, if you look back in John chapter 5. But even Moses stands against these men because they do not believe his writings as they were pointing to Christ. But the man takes it back before Moses. He says, ever before. I mean, we have to ask this question, who is this man? Who is he? He was just a man on the side of the road, couldn't see, begging for anything he could have in life. And now he's bold. Who is this man? After the grace of God came upon him and made him to see, he is standing with eyes wide open, boldly proclaiming the truth. A.W. Pink says, wherever there is uncompromising boldness toward men. There is humility before God. It is the God-fearing man who is fearless before the Lord's enemies. Are you fearless because you fear God? They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us, and they cast him out. <laughs> Listen, this is nothing new under the sun. When you're beat, in that moment when you're beat, all you have to do is chastise look down upon, to discredit someone's testimony, to put them down, notice their arrogance. And this is how they viewed him the whole time. This is coming forth from their heart, out of their mouth. Who are you, man? You're nothing but a sinner. You're not like us. You're not in our circle. Maybe you feel that way as a follower of Christ. You would say that you're a follower of Christ, but you don't feel like you belong in the church. Why? Why? There's not a single person who belongs in the church apart from the grace of God. So take rest in that as this man is taking rest in Christ because by God's design, he chooses the lowly to shame the wise. Church, don't be intimidated by anyone, but be bold for the Holy One. 
Don't be intimidated by anyone. What can they do? Trip you up in conversation? Just admit that they got you. I have to go back and study that so I can boldly proclaim Christ again. But come back again. Be ready and do it with love, but do it with truth. Do it with boldness. But know that God has chosen the lowly to shame the wise. Yes, there are many smart people out there. You can YouTube all these smart guys and they can try to explain life, but it does not make sense apart from Christ. They sound good. They're intimidating. I'd probably be intimidated being in their presence. But they're not explaining life without Christ. They're only speaking of what they do not know. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly, folly. Say it one more time. Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see the difference? One crowd sees it as folly. The other crowd sees it as the power of God. It's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to these men who refuse to believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what we are to do. For God took things that were not to bring to nothing things that are. There was not a man on this earth who could get it right. There was not a woman on this earth who could get it right. My goodness, today when we're talking about men and women and who has more authority and who's more... Listen, church, don't don't get led astray by what the world finds confusing. It all begins with Christ who sets everything in its place. And Christ Jesus is the only one who could come and get it right. For man and woman. He's the only one who could live a good life. And he did. He's the only one worthy to be called a good man. Isn't that something for our culture? For how many people do we say, that is a good man right there. Mm, Man, that is a good woman right there. Let me tell you. There's only one good man. It's Jesus. I wonder if you really believe that. Do you really believe that? Because God made something that was not. That's a good man here on this earth who did not sin, who honored the Father at all times. And then he went to the cross so that he could defeat something that was our sin, our guilt, our shame. He took it upon himself and he made a payment in full. Why did he do this? Because Jesus makes the blind man to see so that his guilt no longer remains. That's why. He makes the blind man to see so that his guilt no longer remains. 
there's a really good chance that today several of you have walked into this room and you have a lot of guilt weighing on you. I don't know what you've done, but you do. And God does. And it's weighing heavy on you. You may cover it up really well, but right now you're getting uncomfortable as I even speak of it because you know that it's real. You may be terrified of this guilt. You may be bogged down by this guilt. It's keeping you from loving others. It's keeping you from walking confidently in the Lord. You're guilty. You feel the guilt. And for Christians, you have someone to go to who has taken on that guilt already. He paid for it. Trust that he's paid for it. Be healed. For you in the room today, if you're not looking to Christ, there's no one else who can pay for it. No one else. No one else that you can take that guilt to and be healed. There are many remedies out there, but they're all short-term. There's only one who can eternally heal you, and that is Christ. Jesus comes to the man. Listen, not his parents, not his friends, nor any of the Jews, but Jesus. After all of this, Jesus comes to the man. You want to know who's going to be there for you no matter what? Jesus. Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Catch this. This is the first time their eyes have met. Because the last time, Jesus sent him off to be healed. When he returned, Jesus was not there. But then Jesus comes to him after all of this. Now their eyes meet. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. You have seen him. Do you know, Christian, do you know what a privilege that is to say? I have seen him. There's nothing more valuable than seeing Christ. They told me when I was getting married, Pastor Wayne Dorsett said, oh boy, you're going to cry when those doors open up and you see your bride. I said, no, I don't think so, man. I don't, I don't really, not the, really the crying type. I mean, no doubt she's going to be beautiful, but I, I just don't think I'm going to be that guy. I mean, I laughed at all my other buddies who did that. But when those doors opened up, <laughs> I mean, it was, I was sobbing. I'm like, man, get a hold of yourself. And I'm like, wow, what is this? My, my bride. Radiant bride. Nothing, even a radiant bride coming down the aisle, compares with the testimony of seeing Jesus. I wonder if we really believe that, church. I wonder if we really believe that. For this man, he believed it. Because Jesus makes the blind man to see. Here's what he says, Lord, I believe. If you're wondering what all you have to do to be saved, Lord, I believe. I believe you're the one. I believe. To prostrate oneself before someone as an act of reverence, fear, or supplication. 
And with this good confession, he places himself at the feet of Jesus. But it does not stop there. It does not stop at the good confession. Because for this redeemed man, his guilt is taken away. This sin taken away. Those who refuse to believe and those who are afraid to believe remain in utter sin and guilt. What does our guilt do to us? It crushes us. Somebody makes a mistake on a ball team. The coach says, we're not doing, going anywhere. You're not going home until somebody confesses that they did wrong. And nobody speaks up. We're going to do up-downs until nobody can breathe anymore. If he can do that today. Waiting for someone to speak up. Somebody, until somebody speaks up. I don't care if you did it. Just somebody needs to speak up for the team. You know, if God did that to all of creation. Oh, you messed up. You messed up now. All of you are guilty until someone speaks up. Someone better speak up. Who is it? Who is it? There's not a single man or woman who could have ever stepped forward and said, I'll take one for the team. I'll take one for the team. No, there had to be one sent down named Jesus. And he came and he took one for the church. And he paid for the church. So the church no longer is guilty. Jesus came to take on the guilt of the world, a world of sinners, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Christ was crushed for our iniquities so we would not be crushed by our guilt. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If he has made you to see, your guilt no longer remains. What does this kind of life look like? It's fearless and determined to make much of Jesus Christ. Christian, take comfort that your guilt no longer remains. doesn't mean that you won't be convicted by sin because that's where the discipline of the Lord comes and corrects. But your sin has been paid for. That leads us into victory. That leads us into obedience. Because if it was the other way, we would be so crushed by our guilt, we would never obey. We'd never obey. To those in this room, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear the reality of this message today. You're guilty. Your guilt is upon you. No one pays for that guilt except for Christ. Will you trust that Christ is the Lord? Will you believe that he is Lord like we see this man in this passage? And will you know that he'll take your guilt away and that you can live freely with joy and hope and the peace of Christ? Call upon him today. Save me, Lord. Take away my guilt. I trust in you. Will you do that today and be saved? Let us pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word. As we close the book of John for the rest of this year, thank you for what it has meant to us. Thank you for what we have learned. We look forward to what you'll continue to teach us in the new year. But Father, what a joy that our guilt 
is taken away. It was wonderful that this man could see. But his greatest treasure was not that he could see with his eyes, but that he could believe with his heart. Because his guilt had been taken away. May we respond the same? Our greatest treasure is not that we could see you with our eyes, but that we could believe you with our hearts by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.